you're listening to a Better Mousetrap podcast. I'm your host, Marcos Dinnerstein. Every week, I bring you an important player in New York City's tech scene, and maybe as important, I also shine a light on the newest players. What each of them does matters. I have with me today Charlie Oliver, the founder of Served Fresh Media. Charlie, first of all, thanks so much for joining us. And I know you wear a bunch of hats. Can you uh, start to tell us about all the stuff you're doing? Oh, sure. I don't, I'd never think of myself as wearing a lot of hats because I think everybody's wearing a lot of hats these days. But I'll, I'll try to sum it up really quickly. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be having this conversation with you. Uh, but I am the founder of Surfish Media, which is a digital media strategy agency based in New York City. It's about 10 years old now, which is hard to believe. Time flies. Um, and it basically, we we focus on helping enterprise companies to um, sort of refine their messaging. We help them with marketing, um, product launches, uh, developing technologies. We help their innovation teams with developing technologies in-house and um, also consumer-facing um, innovations. And we also do events. We've been doing live events, meaning that we help them with uh, event marketing strategy and bringing the right people to the event. And uh, yeah, that's one thing. So the other thing is that I recently launched Tech 2025, which is under the banner of Surfresh Media. And that's a platform and a community for learning about emerging technologies. And I say that there are like about eight or nine, really nine sort of really consequential completely disruptive technologies that are just all percolating at the same time uh, right now and that uh, will pretty much change this this world like unbelievably right so in 2016 late 2016 I launched tech 2025 as a way to help people to come in and learn about these things in a non-technical way which means that you can be an engineer or a software developer learning about this but you can also come in and be someone who knows absolutely nothing about the technologies and um, feel comfortable coming in and learning about them and talking about them and the implications of them on society Uh, yeah this is really really important work you're doing because oh, we, we, thank you. Well, we, we can't leave. I, I was having this conversation with David Ryan Polgar. You know, uh, the yes. Company. Yeah. We love David. Yes. Yeah, he's awesome. <laughs> he is so awesome. <laughs> he um, is. And, you know, uh, you know, he and I, and I guess you, are all in violent agreement <laughs> 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 that, that technology and its implications are too important to be left solely to technologists. Exactly. And and first of all, I, I'm going to start using that term "violent agreement." I love that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I stole it from a, a good friend, mentor of mine, and I've been using it regularly. <laughs> well, that's a theft I can get behind because now I'm going to steal it from you. So <laughs> please, please, just you know, put that little that little CC next to it, Creative Commons. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I couldn't agree more, though. I couldn't agree more. And the thing is that. Um, you know, that, that the wonderful thing about that, okay, so here's the thing, the most challenging thing about that, meaning bringing people into 
the discussion and the development of these technologies and how they roll out in a number of ways, whether that be legislatively with regards to actually developing the technologies or to, to trying to understand the ethical consequences of them and in and, and companies. The, the, the challenging thing is that we aren't used to doing that, right? We aren't used to being told that we should be a part of this process and that we can understand it. So you have to sort of, we have to sort of condition people to understand that, yes, you can and you must, unless you sure. want to sort of, I mean, otherwise, I mean, the, the alternative is really grim, right? I mean, that means that we would be building technologies and we can look at Facebook today as a prime example of what can go wrong if we don't sort of become really thoughtful about these processes. The other part of that that's a challenge is in getting companies to understand, although I do think they're beginning to really understand, that they have to find a way to reach beyond their comfort zones to help people, including and especially, first and foremost, their own employees up and down the ranks, um, to understand that they have to participate in this in a way that is going to make the company a far more vulnerable than they were before, but in the long run, more successful and more stable if, if they allow that process to happen. Um, and so that, that also extends to the consumer as well. So that's the positive can, thing. The negative stepped up. I, and then I, think, I, think I understand what you're saying there, but can, can you elaborate a little bit more, more on that? Um, uh, being more vulnerable. Do you mean by being more transparent and opening themselves up to criticism about how they operate? Absolutely. Uh, that and other things. And I'm glad you asked that question because that was, that was the basis of, of, of launching Tech 2025, right? Which is that I kept hearing from clients. And again, these are C-suite executives and mid-level managers in, in companies, you know, IT managers. I kept hearing from them this concern in 2016. This was early 2016 about artificial intelligence and machine learning back then. they And of course, back then we really didn't sort of fully understand it, that what would happen in the coming years. But, but I, even then, we did understand that this was a game changer. So the questions I kept getting was, Charlie, how do we prepare our organizations for this? What is this? Oh, my God. Like, they knew intuitively that this was different. This was different than Web 2.0. So my question, my answer to them was always, well, how are you discussing this with the rest of your organization? And when I, what I mean by that is I mean everyone, everyone, up and down the ranks, down into the mail rooms. Are you having this conversation about AI and its potential to completely disrupt and change everything, almost everything, <laughs> um, about what you are, including your company culture? And of course, the answer then was no. But then there was also the fear that there's no way that we can do that because well, number one, we haven't done that before. And, and historically, that would mean, you know, death. You, 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 have to, you have to have top-down innovation, right? So the purpose of Tech 2025 was to say, no, 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 no. Not only should you not do top-down innovation, and I'm not saying that that's a horrible, horrible thing, but you need to combine that with bottom-up innovation that meets and, and that can meet somewhere in the middle where you have um, different parts of the organization and different people in the organization talking in a way that's, that they never have before. And that is extremely vulnerable because no, you can't control the conversation and you have to allow, I mean, look at ethics, for example, the ethics of these technologies or the ethical implications of them is really causing, you know, a lot of heartburn, right, for a lot of managers. Sure. And even for the big, even for the big tech companies, um, 
you know, Google, Google has had, I mean, they're having dissension within their ranks about how they are rolling out these technologies, right? But the problem is that if they don't have that transparency within the company, and if they don't, if they don't begin to say, and this is two things, number one, if you don't begin to say, I don't, we don't know, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You're going to have a problem because the fact of the matter is we don't know. Gone is the era of expertise to the point where everyone is willing to trust and believe that companies have all of the answers. You know, the fact is they never really did, but they had enough of the answer and they were able to deliver on it to the point where, and predict the future to the point where it felt reasonably safe to trust that. That no longer exists. So if they don't have that right now, they have to rely on what the truth of the matter is, which is we really don't know how this is going to play out and we need you. And that is probably the most vulnerable that you can be as an individual and as a company. I don't know. And I need you. Those two, those two phrases. So I, I would say that's one thing. And then the other, and, and that's transparency. And the other thing is with allowing, opening up the creative process, right. To, to, to those who are in the organization and to your customers to help you co-create and, and redefine the company culture which is something people don't talk about, but that's the real undercurrent here of how things will change is what the company culture is turning into as a result of these, these technologies and all of the, all of the discussions happening. Sure. Um, and that's the hardest thing to change culture. It is. It's the hardest thing to define and it's the hardest thing to change. And the problem is that the, the, the uncertainty that people feel a lot of time has less to do with the technology and more to do with the fact that they see and feel the culture around them changing in a way that they can't really grapple with and understand. And if they don't get the support that they need to do that, um, that, that uh, misalignment and that confusion and even anger or disappointment will play itself out in other arenas, which is, okay, then what's going, the technology is the cause of this. And it's like, no, no, it's not, <laughs> right? Not entirely. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, if you have a company that has a culture of, uh, you know, listen to management and, 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 you can only ask questions that we can answer definitively, and you cannot um, you cannot question assumptions, right? We cannot question the assumptions that have gotten us to this point because those assumptions have worked. If that's your culture, you're not going to survive the next yeah. ten years. So let me t- let's toss out at you and and my listeners um, something that I read this morning, uh, not fully through it yet, on Medium. The title of this article is Decentralized AI Manifesto. Uh, and it's just, <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a mouthful, but it's really, it's, it's, it's talking about basically the inter- intellectual and ethical framework for thinking about how to develop artificial intelligence. Uh, it talks about the, the, the concepts of what's called the acronym ART accountability, reliability, and transparency. Um, It it talks about uh, the principle for algorithmic transparency and accountability, uh, awareness, access, uh, and redress, uh, accountability, explanation, data provenance, you know, where where data has come from, auditability, uh, validation, and testing. I mean, all of these things are are really, really important for for the very reasons that you you, uh, you know, just mentioned, um, and it's 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 a cool thing that we're we're starting to have this discussion on a uh, a broader basis. Uh, right. Kath, Kathy O'Neill, 
you're familiar with her. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, with, with her book, Weapons of Math Destruction, and her, um, her blog, Math Babe. These are all these are all cool things, and they're 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 so important. And and again, to, to pat you on the back, you, you making the broadening of this discussion uh, one of your missions is great. I mean, it's 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 so important at the, the uh -huh. big the big society level. Mm. Wow. Know? Yeah, you know, it's funny regarding that. No, that so no, no, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> Lucky for me, I have more immediate pressures, like paying bills and dealing with like... <laughs> That's right. But, we, but here's the thing. The reality is, is that pressure is not just on me. It's on all of us, whether or not... It is. Of course problems. it is. Right? Um, yeah. So, but back to your point regarding... You made two really interesting points. That manifesto, I actually have that bookmarked and I started reading it and I didn't finish it. Um, that actually, I'll, I'll read that this weekend. And the reason I had that bookmark is because we just did a workshop on manifestos, tech manifestos and the moral philosophies of, of tech CEOs, right? And, and people were kind of blown away by that. And the reason that we did that is because I said we are asking people to, well, listen, we, we, people are being asked inside of companies to do things that they've never done before. And that's everyone up and down the chain, right? Which is to look at our morals and our ethics and ask ourselves, what, who are we becoming? What do we want to become? Like, let, let's not even assume that we understand what it is we want to be, let alone whether or not we can get there with the existing tools without destroying ourselves, right? So, so the thing about that, that, that I think is fascinating is that um, most tech companies, big, big tech companies, you know, a lot of companies, period, but especially tech companies have manifestos and they, CEOs like Zuckerberg and, um, and Satya Nadella and everything, they actually rely on writing manifestos frequently. It's a tool for rallying the troops, for paving the way, for creating a vision that everybody can follow, including, including customers. Um, but if you read the manifestos of these, of these tech companies over the past 10 years, and the manifestos of the CEOs, and I'm talking about the top top five tech companies, right? Um, you see clearly a disconnect. You see, in some places, you see that there, there is change that's happening that's positive. Like the stuff that Microsoft is doing, if you read their manifestos over the past two, three years since, not, since Satya Nadella took over, it's pretty compelling, innovative stuff. But for the most part, those, those manifestos are there's a disconnect there between what they're saying in those manifestos and what they're delivering. So you're saying and, you, and they're not walking the walk? They're just talking the that's talk? A, I literally put that in the description of the workshop. Are, the question is, are we in these companies and these companies in themselves walking the walk, walking the talk, talking the walk. Yeah, okay. I always, <laughs> I love that term, but I always get it back. <laughs> My brain flips yeah. it around. Um, so that's one thing. So with regards to that manifesto, I'm so glad you brought that up because in the workshop, one of the things that we say is that you need to, we need to read these manifestos that have been published, not just now and, and recently, but over the past several years to understand what these companies have become and where they are telling us they are going. Right. Because they are trying to communicate that to us, whether it's effective or not, is one thing. But the other thing is we should be writing our own personal manifestos for the future and for AI like individuals. And I say this to someone who has not done it yet. This is a, one of my to do things, this big thing. I am going to write a, te a tech manifesto, right? And a manifesto for the future and for AI about what my expectations are in the, in the limited knowledge that I have about where I think the world is going. Um, 
and and my and and how I plan to help people to get there. So that's one thing. I think that's a good exercise, but we can talk about that. Um, and the other thing is Kathy O'Neill. I actually met her. She's awesome. Her book is amazing. Yeah, I met her at Yeah, exactly. I met her at Grand Central Tech. A, a, like, it was shortly after her book came out. And I listened to her amazing talk and the room was packed. And I listened to all of the questions that were being asked of her. And I was the last person, I think, one of the last piece of people to ask a question. And I asked her a question that she was stumped by and that she afterwards, a couple of months later, told me, you know, because we, we communicated again after that. She said, I remember you, your question really was an amazing question that made me think. So I'm going to tell you what that question, should I tell you what the question is? I don't know. No, 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 no. Let's just leave it dangling so that people can go. Tell me the damn question. <laughs> what was the question? Well, but, but I appreciate it. So here's the thing. Speaking of being vulnerable, I really appreciated her, her intellectual vulnerability at that moment because she admitted that to, to her to us in the audience and to me later that that was a, it was a difficult question to answer she, she didn't try to be very honest i like that about her i like that about her so the question was because she made a, a comment about and she discussed that length actually about how she was having problems getting clients that although she she had just published this book and she's you know obviously respected at what she does she was not able to convince see you know that the the the, the innovation teams and companies to allow her to come in and audit their algorithms to prevent any kind of potential problem down the road. Uh Um, Yeah. Right. Right. So, so of course I listened to her for a while and, and I, and she up until that point did not have one client, even though she had been trying for, I think quite a while to, to convince someone. So that's a red flag for me. Right. And so I said, well, regarding that, um, what is number one, what, what would be the incentive in the immediate for a company allowing you to basically go into their underwear drawer, right? Like, like, like their algorithms, I mean, there's no real incentive there. You know, anybody sitting in corporate America knows there's no, what, what, what do I get out of, especially when we have not seen um, the negative impact of, of, you know, bad algorithms, at least not up until that point, because it was all still traditional company. Not in traditional company, exactly. So as far as an executive's concerned, as far as, you know, and their, you know, arrogance and natural sort of inclination to think that they can manage any disaster, it's better off for them to just, you know, roll with what they have. And then when something happens down the road, they'll deal with it. But the other part of this that was really, I think, stupefying for her was I said, I sat at an event in 2016, the day, a couple of days after Trump was elected. Okay. And- I was sitting in front of Mark Zuckerberg, 10 feet in front of him, as he said those famous words that will forever haunt him to his dying day that he professes is the thing that changed the trajectory of Facebook and his life. And that's that he said to to um, to the interviewer, who is uh, David Kirkpatrick, there's no way that Facebook could have had anything to do with any of this, is any of the Russian meddling uh-huh. and interfering. Uh-huh. So I said to her, I said, that mentality is not, that's pervasive in corporate America. There's a denial that there is a responsibility or culpability for technologies going wrong. And how do you get around that? How do you convince the executive that the the technology not only can go wrong, but most certainly will at some point because 
And, and when it does, we may not even know how or why. How do you convince it? And so she, I, that was basically the question. I think I may be butchering it a little bit, but she was really thoughtful. Um, she gave the best answer she could. But to be honest with you, I don't know that there, we figured out what that answer is yet. We learn by, as part in the term, we learn by screwing up. Yeah. You know, it's, in, it's interesting you mentioned this because recently I spoke with a client of mm-hmm. hers. I, I interviewed uh, Yale Fox of mm. uh, Rent Logic. I, uh, yeah, I know the company. Yes. Yeah, and, and for listeners who hadn't caught my podcast with him, he was a, he was a terrific interview subject. They do, oh, I'd love to listen. They do a, um, a service in the real estate world that gives a letter grade to residential mm-hmm. buildings based on publicly available data. Right. And they wanted, in order to get buy-in from, and, and this is the wonderful thing about his business, is that he gets buy-in from all of the stakeholders. So it's not an mm-hmm. anti-landlord tenant service. It's a transparency service that lets good landlords show off that they're doing things by the book and that their properties are worth looking at. And conversely, if they get bad ratings, their deficiencies are shown. So the fact that they're scrupulously fair uh, to all parties uh, allows them to, to be uh, you know, a, a great platform. And they hired Kathy O'Neill to audit their algorithms to make sure that there wasn't any unintended bias built into their software. Mm-hmm. And that gave, that gave further credence to their reliability. So she added value by being part of that process. She did. She clearly. But let me ask you a question. I mean, just playing devil's advocate. Sure. Um, al- algorithms are changing all the time. They, they're, they're constantly <sighs> updating them and editing them. And what, you know. They have a board of directors. They have an independent board that looks at, that examines. Oh, that's great. Every, that's great. Every year. So they're. Uh, that's fantastic. And again, it's from a, a broad swath of stakeholders, landlords, landlord um, advocacy groups, tenant advocacy groups, city government. Uh, I love that. I, I hope she does. I hope she shares that. I mean, in terms of it being a case study or research or something, because that's that's a great model. Yeah, yeah, it is. Anyway, so we've got, we've got limited time, I know. So let's jump to the news of the day, mm. which is... Uh, Amazon, and they're leaving. <laughs> I'd love to hear your take on it. Um, you know, I am uh, firmly in the camp of, wow, I don't know if we'll ever really know what the net positive or negative would be because the, tr- the process was not transparent enough. That's my very, very short take. What, what's, what's your take? Well, I love your take. I love your take. And not only do I agree agree with that, but I would add that it wasn't transparent enough and it wasn't long enough. Right. So so we did an event on Amazon literally two weeks ago, two weeks to the day that Amazon pulled out of the deal. And one of the things we had, uh, Justin, why am I not remembering his last name? But he's from the New York City. Kramer, Justin Kramer. Kramer. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. 
not Charlie, um, from the New York City Department of Economic um, Development. And he came in and one of the, the conversation that I had with him, which I told everyone at the time at the event, and we had a great, great panel of speakers um, also um, from the, we had the Queens Chamber of Commerce represented. And, and so I really wanted to get to the bottom of how to have a discussion about this so that all of the stakeholders are involved and that, um, you know, information can flow um, and calmer, calmer conversation and, and debate can sort of prevail, right? So <laughs> what are the things that Justin said to me that made me, quote unquote, clutch my pearls, as the saying goes, is uh-huh. that, and it literally, I was like, oh my God, he said, you know, Charlie, nothing has been signed with Amazon between Amazon, the city and Amazon, the state. He said, there really is nothing that's binding right now in this agreement or this, you know, and that shocked me because the first thing I said to him was, Oh, so you mean you guys can pull out or Amazon can pull out. Now, when I said that, I didn't really think that that would happen. Right. But it it intrigued me that we, we were so early in the process that this was really not a done deal. This was nowhere near a done deal. And the fact is that I think at that point, most people really thought, oh my God, this is a done deal, right? Like this is, it's happening. And to your point, um, so let me just tell you what, what I, I tend to agree with what you're saying. I was hopeful that it would work out. I love the idea of any company coming into the city that could bring value to the city, that could bring 25,000 jobs. However, I had concerns. I think that they were sure. things that should have been addressed that wasn't. I also don't think that Amazon can run away from its record in its past. It follows you just like all of our reputations follow us. And what they did and what happened in, in, in everywhere else they've been, especially Seattle, Sure. You know, and the stuff that that's go the stuff that's going on with their employees right now. I mean, God, your your employees globally just pro, just stage the protests or walkout or whatever on how how they're being treated. That stuff does not just dissipate, right? I mean, you create twenty five thousand jobs, and and of course, jobs that would be created as as a result of those jobs. But you know, you 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 cannot walk into New York and think that you can just take it, right? right. Um, and not another today. thing to remember not that New Yorkers. Day. Not in today's day and age. And also New Yorkers like a fight. New Yorkers get down and dirty. And when you look at like the Barclays Center, which was a very similar situation, that was a big corporation coming in to basically re remodel, restructure the entire um, uh, social and economic fabric of a neighborhood in Brooklyn. I remember it well. That was, town. Five, oh, it was horrible, right? Five, five blocks five from where I grew up. Me too. My, so I, it was near my house. And so I remember the fights and, and people who didn't want to be displaced and everything, but they stuck it in. They stuck it out. They, they, it was messy. It was an ugly process. Not everybody was happy in the end in terms of like, oh, you know, but it was a, it was a battle that needed to happen. And in the end, it turned out to be better for everyone, but for that, but it's now a hub in Brooklyn that brings in um, people and revenue and, and everything. So my point is back to your point, you know, yeah, Bezos pulled out way too early, way too early. Um, so we will never know whether this would have been net positive or net. And that's the problem is that anyone who's saying to you, we lost 25,000 jobs. Yeah, but we won't know what that really would have cost us because we didn't get deep enough into the discussion to, to, to understand. So, you know, I think, but the big losers here, of course, are who are, you know, um, your, your, your governor and your mayor, right? Because they did not 
how it is one thing for Bezos being the most powerful man in the world to underestimate this city. I don't know how Amazon did that, but but the fact that our own politicians <laughs> underestimated and misjudged the tone. It was heavy handed. It was just it was heavy handed the way they went about things. Unbelievable. But it is a turning point because here's the reality. I don't know if you agree with this or not, but my, my take on it is the reality is all of this aside, the, the bottom line is that Amazon pulling out as quickly as they did for whatever reason, whether it's because they didn't want to work with unions or they didn't want to fight at the local level, whatever the case may be, it does send a strong message to other companies that would be coming in, right? Um, Amazon is not the only game in town. Those no, are 25,000 jobs. Google and Facebook are, are, are going ahead with their expansion plans here. So Exactly. And we're, and not, here's the we're thing. not giving them major tax breaks. We're so. not giving, exactly. And there are other companies. And so when people say, oh my God, we're going to lose 25,000 jobs, two things. Number one, we've been spending the last three years telling people that millions of jobs are going to be created as a result of AI. We've kind of talking out two sides of our face here, you know, like, oh, uh-huh. we're going to lose jobs to robots. Oh, we're going to gain millions of jobs because of robots or, or automation. Um and we also at the lows, you know, unemployment that is, is at its lowest rate in like, you know, decades, right? So the idea that people uh, see unemployment as the big demon in the room that needs to be kind of, you know, I think it's probably not accurate, clearly not accurate. The bigger problem here is big tech companies and the perception of, of the minds of ordinary people and feeling like they're going to be kind of, you know, pooped on <laughs> in the end. <laughs> there you go. That's the, tech, the technical term. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I know you got to jump in a second, but I, you know, I want to let you plug your next event. So what's what's coming up? Oh well, there's a couple of things. So we have a uh, we have a workshop next week with Jamie Brew, who is amazing, and he's going to be kind of talking with us about how to co-create with. Um, algorithms and artificial intelligence. He has a community called Botnik. It's a global community and they create um, all kinds of amazing sort of screenplays and art and everything based on um, working with predictive analytics, excuse me, predictive algorithms. And it's actually really compelling because he's working with agencies now and brands and trying to get them to understand how to allow the technologies to push the limits of their creativity. Um, So that's Monday. Where can yeah, that's funny. You can, that. yeah, you know, you can just go to the website at tech2025.com and okay. uh, you'll see there, you'll see upcoming events. We actually have a whole bunch of events coming up. You can, we try to, we're trying to make it easy now. People can join um, the membership, which is really good. We have the individual membership, corporate, small business or whatever. So, you know, if you feel like you want to come to a lot of events, which is important because that's, you know, in terms of building a community, we want people to feel like this is a place to go to meet other people and to do killer stuff. Um, you can join and get a better bang for your buck if you become a member and contribute to the community. So that's it. <laughs> so Charlie Oliver, founder of Serve Fresh Media. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. 